Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. Okay, so as I've mentioned in prior preambles, I am attempting to do this show without any advertisement. I just think it's a better experience. But if you have the financial ability to support our efforts, I would be grateful if you headed over to onecommune.com support. You can contribute a few bucks or join commune membership and get unlimited access to all of our courses. Thanks, and it's an honor to do this work. Okay, so on the show today, my old, old friend, Elena Brower. Elena is a world-renowned yoga teacher. I think she taught the biggest single yoga class ever in Central Park for 10,000 people. I was there in the rain. She is a brilliant writer. Her first book, The Art of Attention, is beloved by me and by tens of thousands of yogis around the world. She hosts the podcast Practice You, I've been on there once, and teaches classes on the glow. So after what I might describe as a truncated exhale, this is my first interview after the election, and of course, Elena and I touch on that. We also probe the role of the teacher, and we talk about the rise of misinformation, its rampant spread on the internet, and the importance of media literacy. And I suppose most poignantly, we talk about our collective need to heal and how we can cultivate compassion for those with whom we disagree. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Elena Brower. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. singer i can sing i've never been trained but i used to be able to sing really well and i should probably get some training before i get too old yeah i'm in a band that doesn't surprise me i'm in a jazz band i have a rehearsal right after this (sighs) interview and i'm feeling really pretty nervous about it to be honest with you why it's just because i don't have a lot of um practice being performing mm. and i really want to keep to sequester my music as something that i have no ego in and it's just enjoyable but you know the second that you're on a flyer well it's like the you know the the stylings of jeff krasno on the piano then all of a sudden your ego appears and you're like oh no what if i'm not good enough Right. What if I don't like it? What if I right. don't remember the song? <laughs> That's where I am. I feel like for you, though, you barely have an ego in anything you do, almost to a fault, actually, you lack an ego. Yeah, I'm not sure that's true, but I'll take it on this. Case exhibit A. Yeah. Oh, it's still 2020. It's still 2020, Jeffrey. And right now... I'm glad to report that I just spoke with a very good friend of mine who says this cannot be overturned. Um, But I do have that hesitation in my body, which I didn't have a few days ago. So I'm just trying to meditate at least twice a day, if not three times, and keep the bliss chemistry flowing. Yeah. 
I was going to ask you about that because it was, um, I would call it a truncated exhale. Slow. <laughs> oh, it was the truncation not was not okay. No. No. It was um, abridged. It was the abridged exhale. It was so, so fleeting and so glorious. But you were quite, um, I mean, it's been a year of, well, for all of us, like breakdowns and breakthroughs, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But you got very politically involved. I mean, you were, you know, phone banking and and tell us maybe a little bit about that process i mean and also the process that you went through yourself to kind of get to that place where you felt like okay this is my responsibility i need to take you know a step forward here um all started with mr floyd's murder yeah and i started to really get a handle on my own complicity in this white supremacy started to realize that whiteness is not a problem. It's just something that we need to be very aware of and start to use to a much greater good. And I started to sort of break down my own story with regards to race. And I realized that I actually really care, like deeply care about this. I have always and i do not mean this in any other way other than precisely what it is coming from like a basically seven to ten year old girl i've always wished i was black i had i swear i've had these like really good friends in my life beautiful friends who inspired me greatly with their humility and their grace and something about it always resonated with me just the the color of their skin the way that they uh, they comported themselves And when this came along, I just realized that I really wanted to have a a hand in creating an impact and raising awareness among my predominantly white audience that this is something that we can start to evolve. And so I did. I did whatever I could. I learned as much as I could. I, I continue to do so. I am in conversation with Black friends who are always offering me things that I didn't ask for and teaching me things that I didn't ask about to great effect. I'm so thankful for these understandings. And since then, I basically just realized that I need to help with this vote because I love meeting people. I'm very facile on the phone. And so I figured, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and do some phone banking and see how I do. And I loved it. I was good at it. I found a lot of ease with it. um, And I created a uh, a little flow in my life with it, regular Mm -hmm. flow. So now I'm going to be starting with John Ossoff, then the Senate race for Georgia, um, doing some phone banking for his campaign. And let's see what happens. You know, I I don't know what's going to happen. Let's see what happens. So what is that actually like? I mean, what is that process like? Who, where do you get these numbers? Like, who do you call? And what happens on these calls? It's very technologically uh, smooth, I feel. 
you it depends on who, for whom you're phone banking, but many different um, organizations have it. I, I work with Swing Left, and um, they give you a login. It's a few little steps to log in. You have to sort of confirm this or that, and then you have your phone and your computer connected at the same time. So I basically just put in my AirPods and my phone via the computer continuously dials the next person once the previous person has either not picked up, hung up in my face, or we've talked. And then on the computer screen, I note I spoke to the person or I note this person wasn't home or I note do not call this person again. Or I know they hung up on me. Um, if they do pick up and it's the right person, then there's a series of notes that I take. Uh, it's basically multiple choice. Um, did you speak to the right person? Yes. Are they in favor of Biden? Strongly leaning, uh, not at all, and all these various degrees. And right. then and are, are you calling script? specific people? like registered oh, sure. voters or yes, registered yes, Democrats yes, that yes, might yes. not have voted in the last time, or is it just pretty much all over the map? It's registered Democrats uh-huh. and making sure that they get out to vote. So it, I was doing mission for Arizona for many weeks prior to the presidential election. So I would be in charge of um, calling people and making sure that they had a voting plan. If they didn't, let's make one together. If they had one and they didn't have a way to get to the polls, I have resources, which are obviously very um, uh, readily in front of me in my in my notes that are given to me when I go into the phone bank. Um, and so I have lots of points. And basically everything that you see in buildbackbetter.com right now were was in my notes for these calls. I learned so much. I spoke to some of the nicest, most wonderful, most warm humans, one of whom I've actually kept in touch with, 91 years old, Doris, who allowed me to take her phone number because I said I would call her if Biden won, which is super fun. And, um, you know, just just enough people hung up on me and said, you know, mean things. There were a couple of Republicans somehow stuck in there, which I didn't expect, but they were... Um, they would either just hang up really fast or they would say one mean thing and then they would hang up. And so I would just say, do not call again. They've obviously jumped ship. Um, and every now and again, it would be somebody who really took the time to thank me for my service and to you know really appreciate the effort that I'd gone to, to sitting there for an hour or two and just making phone call after phone call to help folks. And how did you handle the rejection? People just hanging up. You're okay with that? Not about me. It's just not about me. It's about them. It's about their parents. Like, I'm a Democrat. That kind of came from my parents. They were a bunch of ingrained things. Now that I'm an adult, I can think discriminately and make my own choices. But a lot of those folks are just operating on autopilot. And so it's like when your kid says something really mean to you, you just cannot take it personally. It's not about you. It's about their chemistry. It's about something that's going on for them. You can take ownership of your own behavior, of course, but it's not personal, especially in a phone bank. None of it is personal. So would you say that over the course of the year, your understanding of the role of the teacher has changed or maybe just 
generally, what do you think the role of the teacher is in these times? I think my best work comes when I make a space for somebody to see themselves more clearly. I don't think that's ever been different. And for now, for everybody to be able to see themselves more clearly, not like as you would see a stranger with as much um, allowance and acceptance and care, you know, sort of like when you want to make an impression on somebody that you don't know to see yourself and treat yourself like that. That's kind of how, that's the kind of space I make as a teacher for somebody to come into the space, whether it's a meditation or a yoga practice or just a talk and, you know, see yourself in the, in the highest possible light because you're the only one who gets to do that. And you're the only one who gets to make you feel that way. Nobody else is responsible for that. Nobody else can possibly give you as good of a feeling as you can. So practice it. Mm. And that's kind of what I teach. Yeah. I mean, given that we are desperately in need of healing, Mm. how do we begin to tackle that? And in some ways, like, you know, and I've written about this, and I know that you have too, um, you know, when you say things or when one writes things, like the nation needs to heal. Well, that is absolutely true, but it's also the nation is sort of a big, sprawling, kind of vague concept. And mm-hmm. really, this is going to come down to, you know, families and communities and friends um, who have been torn apart by their political identities yeah. and that somehow political identity has taken primacy above all other identities in determining, you know, who you are and who you're friends with. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we unravel that? Well, I think there has to be first a desire to unravel that and to make come back to a peace and an understanding with the folks with whom you don't agree. So that's a big premise. You know, I have a great desire. You have a great desire. You've made so many efforts to understand the folks who chose Trump. And so have I, like, I actually fully understand. I fully understand why they would choose him. I fully understand the, the, the construct that he represents. I understand the celebrity. I understand the, the, the dopamine hit that he provides, even when there's vitriol instead of, you know, contentment. I understand it. I totally get it. So what I'm doing now is just reaching out to those folks, whatever happens, and saying, I'm here. I have never not been here. Anytime you want to talk, I'm right here. We do not have to agree. Yeah. I um I spoke to a woman this morning who is the only Biden supporter in her family. Oh, wow. And for the last 4 years she's experienced a fractious kind of estrangement from wow. her family, particularly her mother. And she lives in Tennessee and her mother lives in Iowa. 
Um, And, you know, every time they would speak, it would turn into, you know, an I'm right, no, I'm right kind of polarity. Right. And she and her mother are now making a joint effort to actually uh, reconnect. And so, um, and, you know, her, she kind of described this experience that I thought was um, insightful and maybe obvious, but, you know, on Saturday when, when Biden was projected to be the winner, winner, she felt obviously like a flood of excitement and jubilation and joy, but also a sense of like safety and security. And as she was feeling that, she she found an empathy for her mother because at some level she understood that four years ago in her own personal dejection and indignation, her mother had found that same feeling of security and safety. Um, and so now they're in this kind of process uh, of rekindling um, their relationship. And, uh, and she had a bunch of kind of interesting, like actionable ways of doing it. One of which was that they both agreed to not watch TV or go on social media for a week before mm-hmm. they would have their next phone conversation. Wow. <laughs> Which is, you know, that's a big disruption in, in our addictive behavior right now. But um, as it pertains to social media and media in general. But, but it protects them both from their filter bubble. Exactly. And I got to imagine that it moves them. And I know this sounds kind of woo-woo. But yeah. um, but it moves them out of their sympathetic nervous system, out of their sort of cortisol-induced state of fight or flight and into a place of cooperation and relaxation. Right. And I am so curious. So I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to interview her and her mother together. They've, so they're smart. just getting their heads around agreeing yes. to it. Yes. But I'm, I'm really interested in trying to find these te- like real techniques um, for conflict resolution um, and uh, but I you know I wonder from from your perspective because you've had <clears throat> you've helped so many people process grief and mm-hmm. suffering mm-hmm. and I, I I believe that this is similar. It's a similar kind of suffering that do you have insight if you were going to counsel a family like that and not to put you on the spot, but where would you start with that process? What's so wild is that every time I, I work, uh, do get an interview or do an interview or am interviewed myself, I always grab some pile of notes and I have piles of notes all over the place in organized fashion, as you would imagine. Today, for this thing, I grabbed my notes from a David White lecture that he gave. And the practice was that we always look to ourselves as someone new, as as though we're being um, introduced to a stranger. 
for the first time. And even so, so weird that we would want to turn away from this stranger. Like it's not somebody we know well, and it's, we don't even need to be friends with that person to look to ourselves like that. Like there is some stranger in there, somebody we don't even want to meet who will be a danger to our settled identity. And to look at that inner stranger and start to welcome that person and love that person, accept that person who's actually the future self that I am becoming, you are becoming, is to practice the art of welcoming someone with whom you don't agree into your space and being okay with the healing of it, this disagreement. So I found that for me to talk to within myself like that, and by the way, I have a very strict situation with the news, which is four minutes a day of NPR. <laughs> that is on, a very strict regimen. That's it. That's all I need because I'll find out what's going on. Yeah. I don't need more okay. detail because the detail only freaks me out. Yeah, so this is an intermittent fasting approach to the news, it sounds like. It is. That's exactly right. <laughs> 12. <laughs> what is it? 16, 8. Yeah. Um, the the which, by the way, works so well for me. I got to do it. You it's know, really I know good. we're basically exactly the same age. Yes, eat between um, twelve and eight. And uh, and I'm I'm feeling it right now, so right. I got to do it anyway. Between twelve and eight, it's so awesome. But okay. the the whole thing with grief too. I've had a couple of really good resources. Pixie Lighthorse wrote a book called Prayers of Honoring Grief. That has been absolutely crucial. I read from it almost every time I teach live. Um, and to share with people that grief is not, unfortunately, it's so shied away from in our society. And to really honor grief, to really welcome grief, to really open ourselves to feeling grief is to allow it to exit ultimately. If we block it, it will just sit there and burrow in like some rodent in the side of a house into a wood pile, and it will stay there. If we let it out and talk about it and let it process and, and not shy away from it, it actually has a chance to, to be transmuted, transformed. Yeah. Yeah, I have a friend, David Kessler, Mm-hmm. who was a partner with a woman named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who wrote a lot oh, wow. about grief and yeah. Yeah. dying yes. and the stages of grief. Yes, um, five stages. Right. And it's it's rarely a straight line towards acceptance. And then David ultimately added a sixth stage, which is very, very hard to access, but actually finding meaning in the grief. And, you know, there's there's kind of sensational examples of, uh, I can't remember the name of the woman, but she started Mothers Against Drunk Driver, right. Against Drunk Driving as a, um, uh, as a result of, you know, her daughter being killed by an inebriated driver. And, you know, that is a more direct connection or direct association with, you know, finding meaning in, a, in the specific cause of the grief. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, this is, a process. I mean, I think Eric Fromm right like wrote like the only way we can avoid grief is not to love. Right. 
because not to care and not to care because in many ways grief is an acknowledgement of our ability to love yes um and who would want a life without that no and i i think i what i think it's there's a a little i don't usually use sanskrit words honestly but i think this is a good one for right now there's there's a sense of dharma in what's happening now the the next right thing you know what is it that we can do to sort of assuage this experience collectively and i think the best that we can do you me any teacher anyone who you know has any influence on anyone whether you're a parent a, a, a sibling or a kid of a parent maybe even of a parent who's aging the best thing we can do is the next right thing and the next right thing is make peace within yourself so that you can then make peace with other people with whom you don't agree and start the process from right where you're standing because that's the only way there is no other big huge collective solution other than each of us making the choice yeah i think one of the most difficult pieces for that process i'm trying to articulate it as i get my head around it so it's tricky is that we all have these principles that define our identity that define kind of who we are and how we see our purpose in life. And those principles, in many cases, are quite universal. Um, compassion and empathy and humility and honesty. And that living up to those principles is sort of living our most authentic life, a life with integrity. And, and many of us are, certainly I am, very connected to that notion. And then when we see and witness behavior that feels to us that we interpret as in opposition to those principles it becomes like very very difficult to bridge that gap and you know i'm speaking kind of like up in the clouds a little bit but when we see for example someone and this is a question that gets posed by the left on Instagram and Facebook all the time, people who essentially seem incredulous around how anyone can support Donald Trump, who many consider as a sort of a distillation of depravity, that right. if you had sort of a, 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 a register of virtues, he would clock like a zero on virtually every single one of those. Mm -hmm. So then how do we... How do we then sort of step behind the political identity and recognize that within someone that may disagree with you, they may actually share these same kind of moral underpinnings of compassion and empathy and grief. But, it, but from where we sit, from this vantage point of polarity, it is very, very hard to discern that that another that that person would have those qualities, and I guess this is what I'm. I think this is sometimes the the um, you know the the toll um, blocking the bridge, um, where it's like, how do we get past that? How do we get past the well? 
you know, but you don't have any compassion. <laughs> um, I, I, I actually find the best way is to look to the children mm-hmm. that these people are. Like I look at Donald Trump and I, especially after doing a little bit of listening to Mary Trump um, and learning a little bit about the quality of communication in the family. Um, I think it must have been very, very difficult for young Donald Trump to survive that entire situation because he was, like all of his uh, family, really mistreated. It sounds like the father was really a tough cookie. And I look at him like a four, five, six, seven-year-old kid, and I just feel nothing but compassion. You know, I'm so angry with how he's treated so many different humans and communities and so many different things. I don't think that I've forgotten about that. But when I look at him in order to summon that level of compassion, I just see the kid and I get it. I see the kid who feels it necessary to put on bronzer. I see the kid who feels it necessary to spend $70,000 a year on hair plugs. I see the kid who is so insecure that he will speak in this way about women and about uh, various different communities so ignorantly, but it's just a kid in there. So can you find forgiveness and compassion and accountability at the same time? For sure. That's how I get through every day right now. Honestly, there isn't, there isn't, there's not one without the other. I get it. I get it all. But dude, you cannot do this to half the country and not expect us to vote against you. Like, this is what democracy is. We have a say in who we wish to be our leader. And half of us, more than half of us, have spoken. We're good without that now. You know, and that's not to say, you know, I I put up a bunch of stories on Saturday in the flurry of the prospective victory. Uh, There was one with the Statue of Liberty holding a surgical mask as a slingshot with a small Donald, you know, shooting Donald bye-bye. I actually, I took the time yesterday to go through all of those stories and I took down the ones that were the most sort of childish and vindictive. I kept the ones that provided information and insight into what's needed and what what needs to be known about the facts of how he's treated people but that sort of stuff i disappeared and i don't i don't even feel it i get a ton of trolls you can't imagine and i've stopped responding and i just delete and forgive And I trust that they will go and find someone with whom they agree to hang out there on their feed, on their page, whatever. There's not a whole lot that I can do other than to say, this is how I feel. This is what I see. And this is what I hope for. And I'm not going to sit here and hold a grudge in my body because that does nobody any good. Yeah. I mean, have you had to address folks within your community, um, students who may be looking 
to you or to the experience that you provide as safe, quote unquote, and kind of a sacred space as kind of separate from the invective of politics and, you know, who might wish that you kept your racial politics out of their sacred quiet time. Mm. Have you had to have that kind of interaction? And, And if you have, how does that go? What do you say? I haven't actually had to have it uh, in in like a conversation at all. I've gotten a few sort of notes about it, but nobody's super close to me. The folks who are super close to me are as impassioned and as informed as I around these matters. And they feel the same, which is, you know, the, the dastardly perils of the filter bubble, obviously. But I did get this one note. Uh, an older couple, not much older than I, you know, we're 50 years old now, so they're in their 60s, let's say, who have been on a few retreats of mine. And after I sent out my email yesterday for November, which has as its subject line healing, and a very short missive to, you know, really look inside, to look outside, and not dissimilar to what I've written for commune. And I get this note back from the husband of this couple. And it says something like, uh, notice how the riots and the protests are not happening. Um, Went on to say something like, uh, it, it was almost like I was talking to a 10, 11 year old, really immature kid who was mad that he lost. And said a few other things that I I don't want to repeat because they were kind of mean and I don't want to perpetuate them any further. Um, And then said, and do you know what? um, It was something, it ended with F them uh, regarding the Democrats. And it was like real breathtaking for me. You know, this is somebody to whom I looked up, somebody whom I really, really love. And I took the time, and this is kind of to answer your question, I would take the time to write exactly what you think. Like in the moment, don't actually censor yourself. Don't do it into the actual email that you're actually needing to return. Just write separately. And I took the time to write down all the things I would love to say, like, hey, you are a rational human being. Do you see what he says? You have a daughter, you have a wife read what he says about women, read what he says about his own daughter. Like, doesn't that impact? And then I, I scrapped it all. And all I wrote back was, I understand how you feel. And I love you both always. Hmm. And I think that that is the beginning of me putting my money where my mouth is, me walking my talk. I don't need to prove what I know to be true. I don't need to make anybody wrong for me to be right. I don't want to be right. I just want all humans to feel safe. And I can tell you, as you know, and to you, if you're listening, you know people who have not felt safe in this country for the last four years, who have been walking on eggshells, people of color, people who have immigrated from other countries, 
people who can't stay or can't come or can't leave because of this this president. And that is a really hard pill to swallow. And I don't need to prove that. I don't need to repeat that to, to somebody like this man. I just need to remind him that I really do actually understand what he feels like because there we were four years ago, like your mother and daughter switching the roles. And I get it. And I love you. And if I see you, I will do nothing but love you. I don't see this as the end of a relationship. I see this as a real serious glitch in the matrix that is happening right now that will pass like everything else does. Yeah. Well, good good for you. I mean, that does require a, a good deal of restraint. Um, and, you know, I think that and I hope that we will be able to have um, disagreements and fervent arguments and debates about positions um, with people, but it's almost like we need to rebuild the root system, yeah. um, which comes from connecting on from an identity that is sits behind our political identity mm. that is more connected to, I think of a general moral intuition that people share about life and a vision for a world and a country that I would say most people share. Um, but you know, that, that root creation, I mean, and I, I kind of think of it that way is that, you know, trees with root systems can sort of withstand you know their branches banging into each other um but our our root system our soil has become so degraded yeah that we're just existing on a hyper emotional level kind of up at the top level of the branches um gosh wow that's beautiful I'll i'll have to record that for a later time no, it's beautiful. I, I, <laughs> what I can say is I'm thinking but, about, remember that movie, Biggest Little Farm? Yes. Yeah, I've been there a number of times. And they cleared everything out. That's the only, like, they, they really just, they just started from scratch and they just let everybody grow where they're growing and do what they're doing. And, you know, the damn foxes ate the chickens and the damn... <laughs> everything grew wherever it wanted to grow and that that had to be okay and pestilence and rodents and all all those different sort of adversities um there's something about and i'm not comparing us to that by any means but there's something about uh an inherent allowing of people to uh believe what they believe and to support each other in their belief as long as it's not going to hurt another human or degrade their quality of life and i think somewhere in there is a new root system somewhere in there is your moral aspect that you were just mentioning like how do i just let somebody who who like my friend's dad how do i just let him be a trump supporter and continue to watch your filter bubble and do your thing. And 
love you anyway and just have conversations around hey you know can we avoid hurting or impacting in a negative way this particular community can we have that conversation and the hard part is that it's not like the biggest little farm where everybody knew what the what the the point was which is let's see what nature would do you know let's just see we don't have that luxury because of the media yeah well I want to hover on that for a moment because I think one of the most distressing things that happened over the course of a extremely distressing year, so this is like a laundry list of things, I suppose, mm. um, but was watching the power that misinformation has when it is weaponized on social media yeah. and the extremism and the tribalism that is a product of that kind of misinformation um slippery slide yeah and you know certainly kind of within our community the wellness and spiritual community you know we we saw i mean i saw a tremendous amount of my community starting to espouse theories related to QAnon and to Q, uh, the, that overall community. And it, it's, it's hard to kind of put your finger on it because there's so many Q-adjacent theories that bubble up and then bubble back down um, from like the most kind of outrageous of like the global cabal of, of pedophiles to, you know, like a general genuine skepticism around 5G and everything kind of in between. Um, but that it felt like our community became particularly susceptible to a lot of these ideas that had very little, if any basis in fact. Um, and I wonder how you perceived that and how you were how you processed and dealt with it, because I'm sure you saw some of that within your own social media. I see a lot of it still. Um, So much of it has fomented into this solid thing. And DK sent me that article about uh, apophenia, the the human want to want W-A-N-T and want W-O-N-T to find seek patterns right and i think what whomever this happens to be this whole phenomenon it's somebody or somebody's who are very keenly aware of how you know gaming works and how people yearn to find patterns in anything um and you know it's what gives numerology and astrology all of its charm um people are dying to find patterns and when when this person or persons quote unquote drop a clue they are just encouraging people to further distract themselves with this it's almost like a video game it's like a nonsensical let's go down this 
little path here and let's see what happens if we if we start to give agency and purpose and priority to this idea and all of a sudden it's like and joe biden is a pedophile i can't tell you how many people have gotten on my feed and said this and really firmly think this it's like guys he's your grandpa he's not a pedophile he has had two children die on his watch and one wife there is nobody more watch his is um when obama gave him the medal of honor watch that and you really see who this person is i promise you <laughs> this is not what's true and for 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 folks to believe based on a total stranger's leaving of a piece of popcorn on a trail that this is what's true is nothing but sad to me. And so I don't get angry about it. I get into understanding and to the people who believe it, I send them any information that I have that is um, cohesive and coherent and salient in explaining that, that piece on medium written by the video game designer is very good. Well-written great points, well-presented. And I just share that in the hopes and in the knowing that this too also shall pass. And it doesn't deserve my attention any more than to help my friends see what the other side looks like. Like, hey, do you want to just look at this and see that your brain has actually fallen into a very real, almost cult-like tendency? Yeah, but this is the insidious nature of it because I've heard podcasts before on your podcast where you, I think, referred to Guillaume Chazlo, who was yes. one of the algorithm developers for yes. for Google, yes. and and he talks about you know how the algorithm and essentially machine learning and AI function um, as. Uh, the content that gets continued to serve up, that gets that, that continues to get served up as you engage with further content. And the goal of, right. of YouTube or any of these platforms is really watch time. And it seems to be the case that the more extreme the content, the more sensational it is, the more watch time it garners. Right. Um, hence, information or videos or posts that actually have no basis in fact tend to spread much, much faster and tend to captivate people for much, much longer. Mm-hmm. And my belief is that this is the greatest threat to our current civilization. And it's only going to get worse because of kind of deep fake oriented technology where I essentially could make a video on my laptop of Elena Brower saying anything I want her to say and then post it on my social media. So we really are grappling with sort of an end of fact or an end of truth. And there's certain elements of our society, the more nefarious ones that, that seem, you know, hell bent on, on taking advantage of that, you know, all the way up to (laughs) leaders of the, of the world. And, and this does, give me great, great concern. Um, and I don't know what the, what the, uh, what the solution's going to be. I mean, I don't know if, 
essentially social media uh, platforms are going to end up becoming publishers, um, you know, with codes of ethics and teams of fact checkers. I mean, that's certainly one direction it could go. Of course, you know, there'll be tons of people that cry censorship and already you see on Facebook, everyone leaving Facebook to go to parlor or something else. Um, so, you know, it's, it is a, because what, what this really gets to is the sort of undermining of any sort of social cohesion. Yeah. And I, I've always felt that like all great human projects require cooperation, flexible cooperation at scale. And if you cannot even have a conversation based around an intersubjective understanding of what truth is, that how are we going to cooperate? And so, you know, this is, uh, you know, when I, you know, Joe Biden is a pedophile is almost like it's just one modification or, you know, it's reflection or expression of this uh this problem that seems shape-shifting in every way and and i'm not sure how we get at it i have no answer to that other than to say maybe it's a wiping the slate clean of all of these ridiculous social media platforms and um you know going going back to the way that it was where we all watched the news you know, two, four, five, six, seven, <laughs> yeah. eleven. You know, I remember those days. Yeah. All those channels and, and where the news was actually the news. It didn't have a subjective slant anywhere. It just was the news. And you watched channel two or four or eleven, whatever, seven, based on the newscaster with whom you most resonated or whatever, the set. It didn't matter. It wasn't about this entire opinion factory when we were kids yeah that's that's yeah exactly that's where i think you know we 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 completely went sideways is at the moment we turned away from that yeah so you're writing a lot and i love your writing bless your Uh, heart i love yours and it's really been a I feel like a like a beautiful, heartfelt source of connection between the two of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm deeply moved and inspired by your writing and, and the way you actually express your writing orally um, and the poetry to it. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your writing and your process um, and how you go about finding words sort of as vessels for stories and emotions i think it all started when i was a tiny little girl and i spent a great deal of time on my own and in that solo time i read all the time you know i was born in 1970 as you were you were 69 and i just had nothing else to do other than to read and that passion has um landed squarely here where you know, James looks in any part of my house and there's yet another book with another bookmark mm-hmm. that I've been reading in that chair, which is not the same book that I'm reading in that other chair. <laughs> um, like so I'm constantly reading. And I think that when I, you know, you gave me an assignment 
And I look to all of my own inspirations. I look to you. I look to Roshi Joan Halifax. I look to Tara Brock, uh, all these different uh, casts by Isabel Wilkerson on my desk right now, all these different people, whomever is in my immediate sphere. And I look to them and I, I will find ways to not copy them, but <clears throat> ways to express what I want to express inspired by the way that they express themselves. I can't really say it any other way. It's just, mm -hmm. I'm constantly inspired and influenced by the writers with whom I'm um, exposing myself and allowing myself to, to receive. Yeah. One thing that I discovered that seems just completely hidden in plain sight. Um, but this year it kind of dawned on me is that when you're reading a book, you are bringing yourself to that process of reading it. And like you and I may read the same book and mm. have a similar understanding of the plot line, et cetera, but we might have a complete different resonance with the turns of phrase or the higher overarching meanings. Um, and I think that that is uh, the piece of writing as a creative expression that's so unique and beautiful that you can sit in whatever particular chair that you happen to be sitting on that's assigned a particular book, which I think is a really interesting and cool image in and of itself. And you're bringing yourself, you're bringing that book that belongs to that chair over into this other chair. And it is the synth it's the synthesis of that entire experience of what is written on that page, but it's also what you're bringing to that that then becomes reflected in your expression. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's um, I mean, I find it to be such the process of it is so um, it's so epiphanous. Like I just lose all sense of hour and minute, <laughs> you know, it just goes away. It's, um, I, I, I highly encourage anyone that even has the remotest inkling to write, to do it just because it, it is such a cleansing, detoxifying experience. Yeah, that's totally true. And I love the fact that when I write, it's never, almost never going to be that, that that's going to be the, the final product yeah. or whatever it is going to be. But the more I look back at it many, many times, the more universal I can make whatever it is that I'm writing, the more personal people will take it yeah. personally. Make sure my grandma was right there. But, you know, for example, any poem by Mary Oliver, almost anyone can resonate with that you know, looking into nature and watching the way that the irises communicate with each other. There isn't anything personal in what she's saying. And yet every single one of us takes that poem and makes it our very own. And I think that's the magic of writing is that to, to keep looking back, make it super personal, as intimate as you can, and then look back and see where you can actually make it in all of its intimacy extremely universal.
Um, and that, I don't know, that seems to be the sort of tension and the play of my process. Is this, is this personal enough? Is it universal enough? Hmm. Do you get very emotional when you write? For sure. Yeah. Tears fall often. For sure. That's, that's generally when I know yeah. I've produced something of value. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. I think our mutual friend Gabby Bernstein once said this to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to, before you can move others, you have to move yourself. That is one of her finest teachings. And uh, so I always know when I have some kind of emotional catharsis, and oftentimes I'm just making myself laugh, <laughs> which is right. a great experience. Right. right. Um, but I think when you make yourself cry, there may be something universal in that. Yeah, I I firmly believe that. I there have been times when I will post something to Instagram with a caption that makes me cry. And it's so silly. I really do know this, but you know, when that's kind of all we have right now in terms of communication, that's quick and efficacious. And if I can have that impact on my own psyche, um, then maybe it's helping one other person and two other people. Well, I deeply appreciate you. I deeply appreciate our friendship, which is going on. Which has a time. few rings around the trunk there, yeah, <laughs> um, and uh, and I think uh, I've always told Skyler that um, one thing that I I deeply appreciate about my relationship with you is that I feel we can drop right back in yeah. where we left off um, anytime, but just even over the last four or five months to sort of rekindle a more um, regular conversation um, with you has just been a, a great blessing, and it's kept me sane um, in some times that, uh, that that could otherwise be fairly insane. So uh, same, same. It's like you. a it's like a balm. <laughs> yeah. I really feel that. Like I feel like your brain and your heart when I need it. When we can talk like this, you know, we've done that pretty regularly since since I moved here even in March um, really helped me to drop back into myself and feel what I'm doing here and not give attention to the negativity that swirls around yeah well and I'll just also say kind of in closing that you know I've also watched a sort of an evolution of humility um, I mean, you know, you're a big fucking deal, okay? And um, and you know, you've you've been around the world. I don't know of anyone that's probably taught more yogis than you. Um, and uh, and a very um, <clears throat> like just your humility to do the phone banking mm. and to do some of the really hard work. Um, I find just. Uh, that speaks a lot of volumes about who you are and inspires me to be a better person. So thank you. I'm going to give that thanks straight to my mother. Rest in peace. Because I think that if she were alive, 
that's what she would be doing. And I'm almost certain that when I was moved to click the yes for the phone bank and do it again and again and again and again, I'm almost certain that she's driving. And I know for sure that in watching other people, especially you, <clears throat> operate in this hilarious small pond that is yoga, um, and do so with that humility to which you've attributed to me, um, has has moved me to be to to grow up and become this person. So I'm gonna just send it back to you and also give it to my mom. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Elena Brower. Go to elenabrower.com and check out all the brilliant projects she is manifesting. And of course, email me any old time at jeffk at onecommune.com. I will read it. And my mom loves reading reviews on Apple Podcasts. And of course, since it's a priority to make my mom proud, I ask you to leave me one. So that's it from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow and I am here for you.